Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to the third edition of the Spy Talk podcast. One of the things we're talking about today, artificial intelligence, which has enormous implications for the intelligence community, the military, and frankly, for the rest of us. It even merited a mention in President Biden's joint address to Congress. We'll see more technological change in the next 10 years than we saw in the last 50. That's how rapidly artificial intelligence so much more is changing. And we're falling behind the competition with the rest of the world. Well, stick around for my interview with Gilman Louie, a member of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Interestingly, he comes out of the gaming world. He licensed Tetris. He designed and developed the F-16 Fighting Falcon Fight Simulator. He'll talk about how he was recruited to the CIA, but also about how AI increases the threats from cyber attacks and disinformation. And this week, I'm also talking to Ronan Bergman, a New York Times reporter who has written extensively about Israel's assassinations program. I asked him about its effect on Iran's leadership. The Iranian leadership is in havoc. It's in a sense of, of a paranoia of seeing a Mossad agent under every bed and around every corner. They are sure that more is coming and very much confused as per the American attitude to that. But first, there have been two recent reports of possible directed pulse energy attacks against government employees in the greater Washington area. These come after years of reports about so-called Havana syndrome. Former acting defense secretary Christopher Miller has called this an act of war. The Intelligence Committee has vowed to get to the bottom of this, but they may have a lot of digging to do. Mark Zaid is an attorney representing victims from the diplomatic and intelligence communities. He says the attacks have been going on for years and years. There are a lot more, actually. Now, the the fact that there are attacks or perceived attacks in the United States is, as far as I understand, having worked this case for almost a decade, relatively new. That seems to be an emboldened effort by the adversary. What is not new and what has been covered up is that there have been attacks externally, internationally against U.S. officials dating back to the 1960s. How many? Well, we don't know any specific number because the fact is that this has been classified for six decades. Most of these attacks uh, occurred to intelligence officers and military not foreign service officers. So we generally never heard of it. Uh, But I've got evidence that uh, from the late 1960s, early 70s, that the CIA was focused on this. And then when I've been representing Michael Beck, an NSA official who was hit in 1996, the NSA confirmed to me in writing in uh, 2014 that they were aware of intelligence from 2012 that there was a weapon being used, a microwave system weapon being used by a hostile country 
Uh, and we know of CIA evidence that Mike Beck brought to NSA that dates back to at least the 1990s of attacks. So if this has been going on for decades, we still don't know who's responsible, right? Publicly, we don't know who is responsible. Russia, Soviet Union is the leading culprit. That's not to say because these are microwaves. The system is relatively, I'll say, simple for for purposes of the podcast. I'm sure scientifically it's not so simple, but it's it is something that probably the Eastern Bloc, former Soviet Union countries, Cuba, anything within the access of the Soviet Union had access to. But Russia is no doubt the primary culprit. Do you feel that there's new urgency to the investigation into who's doing this and what's doing this? Yes, although I would say it's the same urgency that the United States should have been focused on for decades. Uh, Again, I've been dealing with this case for almost one decade, uh, trying to push the matter forward. And while there is a story, obviously, as to who is perpetrating this. I think the maybe the bigger story to the American public is why is the United States government covering it up when it's an adversary doing it to our people? And why do you think they are? That's a, that's a good question. I think there are multiple possibilities. Uh, if we want to be somewhat malicious, it could be frankly, that the United States government conducts these types of operations themselves against the other adversary. I'm told that is not the case, but these are compartmentalized operations, so we don't know. At a minimum, I think it would be embarrassment that this has been going on for so long with no public response by the United States government, and quite frankly, a complete lack of effort to protect our people and to take care of them once they've been hit. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. Are they taking any sort of protective measures? Are there warnings issued to personnel? So, you know, even if we look at this pre-2016, when the story became public, uh, because so many U.S. diplomats, public officials of the State Department were hit and it couldn't be covered up, to post-2016, the State Department is still not telling its personnel when they go overseas of the risks, at least to certain countries, what to be on the lookout for, what to be careful from, how could you possibly avoid it? Not sure if there is a way to possibly avoid it, but at a minimum, what type of circumstances should they be expected to uh, sort of incur if there was some sort of you know, medical problems that they would experience, what should they do in reporting it to the United States government? They're not even doing that. Meanwhile, how are your clients doing health-wise? No, the clients vary. I mean, this is, one shoe does not fit all. And that's one of the difficulties with this story because everybody wants to assume that everyone's gonna respond to this the same way. But, you know, as we deal with the pandemic and we watch COVID, people react to COVID differently. How old are you? Do you have pre-existing conditions? What's your gender? As we saw with the J&J vaccine, it's going to impact people differently. It's the same for this. So some of them had to medically retire because they couldn't continue to work. Others have less disruption and are able to work. Uh, but it really varied. Michael Beck has Parkinson's. His, his colleague who was with him when they were struck, he died from a severe case of 
rare, rare Parkinson's. So, I mean, there, there really is a wide range. I, I know of some people who this ended their career. Your clarion call here? You know, I, I spent years working on Gulf War syndrome. I spent years trying to stop the anthrax vaccination program in the Department of Defense. I see a lot of similarities between those cases, but at least those cases did not have a lot of classified information involved, which this case is shrouded in secrecy, which makes it incredibly difficult to penetrate. But uh, I, I have told clients uh, and anyone who approaches me for this that, quite frankly, be expected to be in it for the long haul. This is going to take time to get the government to turn around. Slow. It, it's sort of like uh, you know a, a trawler on the on the ocean, ocean liner, or or long train. You know, it can't just stop. It takes a long period of time to stop. It's going to take a long period of time to get the U.S. government, probably from top down. I understand President Biden has actually been. Uh, Talk, talk to, uh, I'm trying to brief, thank you, I can't even think of the word, briefed uh, on this issue. Uh, and that's important because I don't know if presidents of the United States previously had been briefed. We've never heard of it. Um, do you think that the change in administration has had an impact on the pace and intensity of this investigation? So because Russia is the primary culprit, anybody who was awake for the last four years is going to suspect that perhaps certain things were not undertaken because it was Russia. That said, this is not a Trump issue. This is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is a U.S. government issue. As I said, we know this goes back into at least the late 1960s. We're talking Johnson administration, maybe Nixon administration, and every administration since. So the degree to which there has been a cover-up has been an executive branch cover-up, not a Democrat or Republican cover-up. And cover-up is the word you'd use? I, I don't think any other word would be as appropriate as cover-up. The Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, and CIA Director Bill Burns say they are focused on this issue. It is a priority. Meanwhile, speculation is rampant that the U.S. and Iran are close to signing a new deal capping Iran's uranium enrichment program. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is firmly opposed to the deal. This week, I talked to New York Times reporter Ronan Bergman about what's going on there. Ronan Bergman is a New York Times investigative reporter and author of the landmark book, Rise Up and Kill, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. It's available now in paperback and as an audiobook. It's being developed by HBO as a dramatic series. On April 20th, Bergman and two other Times reporters, Ben Hubbard and Farnas Fasihi, wrote an astounding story of how repeated Israeli operations inside Iran, multiple assassinations, and the fiery sabotage of a nuclear facility had rattled the Iranian leadership. An important member of the Iranian parliament even said his country had become a nest of spies. Ronan Bergman, welcome to the Spy Talk podcast. 
Are the Iranians freaking out? We are in a crossroad where on one hand, the Iranians, um, the Iranians, the Iranian leadership is in havoc. It's in a sense of, of a paranoia of seeing a Mossad agent under every bed and around every corner. They are sure that more is coming and very much confused as per the American attitude to that. Is it America not knowing, ignoring that? Was the US informed that all of those are coming before or after? And if it does, does the United States restrain Israel and asking Israel not to do, not to continue, or using the, the Israelis as yet another bargaining chip in the discussion in Vienna over the new JCPOA? And I think that the Iranians don't come up with any clear understanding of what, from their point of view, is the most important part, and this is the American attitude. Let me uh, interject here and ask this. Uh, do you think that the Israeli leadership uh, could do these operations without U.S. support? And two, does the Israeli leadership let its American counterparts know that these operations are about to take place? Does it give the United States warning that they are going to conduct these operations? Well, it depends on which operations. Um, two weeks ago, the, uh, Israel has attacked the, uh, an Iranian uh, military ship that is based for commando raids against Israeli civilians, uh, civilian uh, uh, ship, uh, cargo ships in the, in the Gulf. Um, and we have, we quoted in our story with Eric Schmidt and Farnas Fasiche, the New York Times, we quoted the, a, a message a wire that was sent from Israel to the US, but only after the attack, shortly after the attack, with all the details necessary. Um, so this happened afterwards. I would assume that President Trump did not coincidentally, something that he didn't do very often, uh, retweeted our story on the killing of the chief nuclear scientist, Fakhri Zadeh, immediately after it was published. I think he was waiting for the story to be published, not because he was waiting for something happening in the New York Times, but because he knew that someone is going to kill that guy soon. So you're uh, saying- There's a difference between pre-coordination, pre-operation coordination, which I assume happened in the very close relationship between Israel and the Trump administration, and a post-factum, briefing on something, part of the things that is happening nowadays. I, uh, I'm recalling something that Benjamin Netanyahu just said, and he said, we are, Israel uh, maintain the freedom of operation against the Iranian nuclear uh, project. And I think because Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is looking ahead with this kind of freedom of operations in Iran, he is less enthusiastic to hear some of the advices that he's getting and actually go into a specific detailed discussion with the Americans on the different clause uh, and graphs of the new uh, being established deal. So to say we are against the deal, but not having an Israeli imprint so the Americans could not say afterwards, well, you had your chance, you 
uh, we have um, amended some of the that agreement according to what you are asked us. And this is why we have amended to tell you that now it's after it's, it's, it's signed, you should stop your so-called kinetic operations inside Iran. Um, I, I'm not sure that it's going to stop. But of course, once the United States at least stays out and not giving the same kind of umbrella, the chances of deterioration might be uh, greater. Do you think it's possible that Prime Minister Netanyahu has, who has vociferously opposed the nuclear deal that the United States and other countries signed with Iran, uh, that he sees some value in conducting these spectacular sabotage and assassination operations to disrupt the uh, reemergence, the renegotiation of the Iranian deal. Uh, do you think these using these assassination and sabotage operations to uh, to sabotage the Iranian nuclear talks? Yeah. Well, look, I I wasn't lately. I didn't visit um, uh, Mr. Prime Minister's head, so I don't know what is he thinking when authorizing this operation or the other. I heard the same claim after um, uh, Mr. Fakhrizadeh was assassinated in, on November 27, which people claim that happened because of Mr. Biden winning the elections before he, of course, entered the, the White House. I can, I, and again, I don't know, but I can say one thing. All of those operations, whoever did them, it takes months, if not years, to plan and execute and bring to a, from the point of view of the perpetrators, bring to a successful result. So even if, let's say, Prime Minister Netanyahu is trying to conspire to damage the negotiation, he would need to have a much, much, much longer timeline to establish, or not he, but the Mossad and, and military intelligence, would need much more time in order to establish those operations and get them going. Mm -hmm. Not if something happens, start this week, then in two weeks time, you'll have something exploding in Iran. It just, it doesn't, maybe in the series Tehran, uh, now being uh, at Apple or in other series. The TV series Israeli Tehran. Sorry? The TV series the TV, Tehran. Yeah, the TV series Tehran or in other uh, fictionalized uh, series dealing with Israeli intelligence, it could happen from this moment to the other. In reality, the reality is very much, much, much more complex. Mm -hmm. It takes extremely complicated planning to pull off a sabotage operation or assassination of the kinds we've seen. Now, uh, Ronan Bergman, do you expect more operations like this in the near future against the Iranian uh, nuclear establishment, its uh, facilities, its scientists and engineers? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I assume that there were plans uh, probably made uh, if this infrastructure can give birth to those operations, then why not preparing for some more? Uh, it's not the, the, the nuclear project of Iran on its two legs. So one leg is the enrichment, the other one is the weapon group. 
uh, is huge, it's humongous, it's, it's with many, many employees and facilities, the Iran wasn't doing the West or Israel for that sake, the same favor uh, that Iraq did with positioning all of its infrastructure in one place, Tammuz also rock that was, killed, that was destroyed by Israeli uh, raid in 1981, or Syria with North Korea that put everything in one place in Deir Azur that was destroyed in an Israeli bombing in September of 2007. Iran is different. It's it's scattered. It's dispersed all mm -hmm. over the country, which is by itself it's huge. So I I don't know. I assume that that they, they were they were um, uh, they were prepared, but I think that the question is more about uh, politics. Who will be the next Israeli prime minister? What sort of relationship that prime minister will have with the US government? Because anything that Israel would do after the, the new JCPOA is signed, and I assume it will be signed in the, I would say, the most, the next month, we are near, it's, it's, it's immediate. Uh, so anything that Israel would do after that without coordination, going back to your previous uh, question, uh, Jeff, um, without coordination with the US, everything will be seen as a, you know, something very blunt in the relationship between the countries. Uh, and I, I'm quite sure that the, that the White House would not like that. And also there's a new chief of Mossad coming. Uh, Joseph Yossi Cohen is uh, stepping down uh, on uh, June 1st, a person by the, we can identify only by his first letter of his first name, it's D. So D is coming, He's, uh, he was uh, Cohen's uh, deputy in the, the last uh, two and a half years. And um, it's, it's also about that person. Uh, Cohen was, uh, uh, I would say a successor to the heritage of Mayor Dagan, who was the chief of Mossad in the previous decade. When Dagan was uh, taking the, uh, the job, the prime minister at that time, Ariel Sharon said, Mayor, I want you to run a Mossad with a dagger between the teeth. And, um, and I think that, that Cohen more or less continued with the, this tradition with a lot of supporters, but also a lot of, a lot of opposition uh, of people who believe that the capabilities, the kinetic capabilities of Mossad should be reserved only for times of emergency. And in the meantime, it needs to build those capabilities to, to smuggle and hide the explosive, but not press the button. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To be able to infiltrate the Trojan horses on cyber, but not operate them. So anyway, it's the, these are two very different approaches to intelligence and special operations. And we still don't know what D, what sort of approach D will take. So there's a lot of uncertainty about the future in terms of sabotage and assassination operations. But let me flip the scenery a little bit. Uh, we don't know of any successful Iranian operations inside Israel. Uh, oh, no. to sabotage of sabotage or assassination of Israeli officials, do we? Yeah, there was in April 2020, there was a cyber operation that was able to, for a very short time, sabotage some of the water pipes of the, the water pipes of the the the, the it's the, the the damage was minor. 
what was by far more significant was the fact that someone, that, I think from the Israeli government, leaked the fact that it was minorly successful. For a very, very, very short time, they were able to control some of the water pipes, water flow to some village in the, the, uh, the center of Israel. It, it, no, no danger, but, but it was a, an Iranian cyber attack against a civilian infrastructure. And once this was leaked, then uh, right-wing elements of the Israeli government demand uh, a, 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 um, mm -hmm. some kind of reaction, retaliation, which was followed by a cyber operation against an Iranian port. Um, the, uh, the, the whole uh, system of um, moving the containers, uploading them and downloading okay. them from the... So this was successful. Minor, but could, again, could deteriorate. Okay. In general, the Iranians were not able to do anything um, of, of, of severe uh, consequences. So that will be, the Iranian response will be in the cyber realm, which we know they are very accomplished. Um, but you don't see Iranian, uh, Iranian intelligence team entering Israel and conducting assassinations. No, they don't no, have the capability see, to do that. Yeah, but, but we must, we must uh, do acknowledge that some Iranian uh, teams or teams under guidance of the Iranian uh, Ministry of uh, Intelligence, the MIS, were caught in the UAE uh, and in uh, Ethiopia and Addis, Addis Ababa collecting intelligence for uh, um, um, attacks against American and UAE, Emirate and, and Israeli targets. So mm -hmm. they are seeking. Israel is less vulnerable on Israeli territory, more, more vulnerable, of course, the world is a big place, you can always find a, a Jewish or Israeli target. Uh, and of course, Israel sees itself as the protector of the Jews, not just of Israelis. Therefore, the attack as in 1990, uh, 1992 and 1994 could be also against Jewish targets. Mm -hmm. Like there was in Buenos Aires. In Buenos Argentina. Aires, the Anya building in 1990. So we can expect if an Iranian um, attack comes, it's going to be against... Israeli or Jewish interests outside of Israel. And there's no could, end in sight of this covert war between Iran and Israel. There's no, sorry? And so we can say that there's no end in sight of the covert no. war between Iran and no, Israel. No, 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 no. no and, it's all, and most of it is all already not covert. It's, you know, as we said, it's a wink and nod on responsibility. It's happening in sea, in air. Uh, in land, in Iran, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Syria, it's all over. It's war. It's not going through, going to be a war. It's a, it's war that some of it is covert, most of it is overt, and uh, I don't see an end. The National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence defines AI as a constellation of technologies that train machines to have cognitive skills similar to humans to solve specific tasks. It is already embedded in our smartphones, in our automobiles, in the algorithms that determine what social media feeds we see, but the future looks far more ominous. A member of the commission, Gilman Louie, joined me to talk about the commission's finding, and he described how he, a big cheese in the gaming community, was recruited to work on AI for the CIA. I still remember my first day that I met uh, 
George Tenet, who was director of central intelligence, when he was trying to convince me to do this kind of venture capital idea that they had for the intelligence community that led to Inkytel. And um, I, you know, I had recently sold my game company to Hasbro when we were doing simulations. And so I was a great job, chief creative officer of Hasbro Interactive. That's Tom Hanks in the movie Big, right? So I'm sitting there with the director of central intelligence and he's trying to convince me that I should take this job. And so I said, look, you know, Hasbro, I got the best job in the world, right? Uh, and, and he said, he goes, why, why do you think that's the best job? I said, I'm Tom Hanks in the movie Big. And he goes, he leans over and he says, well, Gilman, I just want you to let you know the CIA has much better toys than Hasbro. He said, there's only one difference. And I go, what's the difference? He said, there's no reset button here. So, you know, at, at an abstract level, he was right. You know, that the things that we were doing in gaming and simulation, right? We have an artificial character that's running around that you're playing against. Foundationally, the principles of AI are built into many of the things that gamers build in creating, you know, the suspension of disbelief between the gamer and the game and the environment. I mean, our job is in the gaming world to make you believe you're in the real world while you're playing this game. So a lot of those techniques apply today. In fact, modeling and simulation is critical for the development of AI and machine learning and using reinforcement learning are all strategies based on very much gaming principles. But do you still game? Of course I do. <laughs> Silly question. <laughs> so before we talk about um, the positive applications of, of AI, which uh, I know we'll get to, I want to talk about the threat. Our opponents are um, girding for battle in this space, particularly China. Uh, China has said they want to be they want to dominate AI by 2030. First of all, do you think they're going to meet that goal? Uh, only if we allow that to take place. I mean, clearly they are committed. Clearly they have national means. Clearly they have uh, a vision of where the future goes in all these areas of digital technologies, particularly AI, but it includes 5G and you know bio and a bunch of other areas. So they are totally committed. The flip side of that is uh, the U.S. and our allies right now in their commercial companies um, are in a leadership position. Now, they're moving faster than we are. And, and if, we, if we just pretend like we don't have competition, they'll pass us by. So that, that's why, as the commission, we said, look, we need to take this competition seriously because the consequences of not taking that competition seriously would put us into a place where um, their algorithms, their capabilities, their implementation will be at a far superior position in that Chinese timetable than us if we don't change the rate of change now. So talk about the risk of that happening. What capabilities will they have um, in any event, whether they win the race or whether they're second or third, and they're not the only ones, of course, working on it. Yeah. What are the kinds of threats that AI poses? Well, first, we got to understand what does it mean to be in the lead for AI? And so sometimes it's really hard to discuss this on a national security set of terms. And I, I think I want to use this, go back to my gaming days and, and help people to understand. So AI, at least for the Chinese, had this moment that what they, we call their Sputnik moment. is when the Chinese observe 
that a set of algorithms that taught itself how to play the game of Go. Deep Minds created this thing called AlphaGo that, that beat the national champion of China and, and the world, you know, a world champion in Go, right, with less than 40 days of training, right? Actually, machine time was more closer to like nine hours of training, right? So that was the magical moment where the Chinese woke up and said, oh my God, right? They took the, the entire history, our, our cultural generation of learning how to play Go, and they crushed it by this algorithm. We better get on it. So that was their Sputnik moment. Now, everybody focuses in on that in the AI world, but there was a second thing that happened. DeepMinds, uh, which is now owned by Google, created this thing, the next iteration, which is called Alpha Zero. And instead of competing against a human, they competed it against the best algorithms and they applied it to the game of chess. So computer science, you know, chess was always the aspirational things way back in the forties and the fifties, as we were thinking about computing as a real test of, of machine intelligence. And we, you know, we celebrated when the machine beat you know, Gary Kasparov and, and we built that technology and, and put all the human understanding and expertise into these algorithms that we hard coded into these chess engines and we created the best chess engine today is a thing called Stockfish. So DeepMind, instead of going up against a human, went up against the best chess algorithm, trained itself for nine hours, played 100 games against Stockfish, crushed it. Stockfish won zero of the games, zero, right? They improved the algorithms and cheated and let Stockfish use more time and more computing. The second time around, did a thousand games, crushed it again. So it's not like, my algorithm is better than your algorithms and I win a little bit more, like 2% more at a time, 5% or more. It's like 90%. So coming in second in AI means you lost. What does it mean in real terms? We're talking about more sophisticated cyber attacks, I presume. Yes. Uh, let's say we have our algorithms that are running defense because it's a machine against machine, machines against machine at cyber speeds. Humans are too slow to operate. And let's say our adversaries are using algorithms to beat our defenses. If they have marginally better AI than our AI to be able to detect, deceive, or defend, they can come in the door anytime they want, right? On military systems, if I can get you to believe anything I want you to believe. I can get your sensor to believe whatever it thinks it's seeing to be an artificial thing. If I fool it, it doesn't matter how good your weapon system is. It doesn't matter how good your people are because you're dependent upon what you see to make decisions. They win all the time, right? So in many cases, um, it's an all or enough, nothing game. Same thing with information operations, right? If they yeah, I was going to ask you, is it going to make today's disinformation operations look like uh, tiddlywinks? Yes, because if you take a look at the success of information operation today, they're using many of the things that we use in ad tech, right, to, to, to profile people. But those are relatively rudimentary technologies. If I apply this, if I know I can present a piece of information, to you, make you react to that information, I think it can control the behavior of you. 
And, and so one of the things we teach people to do is we say the best lies start with truths. So we train an AI to take a bunch of truth and reorder it in a way to make you do something that you would not normally do. I win that. I don't even have to use deception. I just need to be able to tell you the truth in a way that makes you susceptible to doing what I want you to do. Does it also become a tool for foreign intelligence agencies to target people, to coerce people? Uh, it's clear that AI and being applied to all the, we call the intelligence circle, right? You know, of which targeting is that one of the first parts of, of the intelligence circle. Um, AI is clearly going to drive that component, right? I mean, just like AI is already telling you, uh, Amazon, what to put up in front of you, the things that you're most likely are going to buy, right? If I can predict your patterns, your concepts of operations, how you go about doing your intelligence gathering, if I can find that pattern, right, then I can take control of the environment and give you places where I can force you down the lanes I want you to go down. The report that the commission has issued says intelligence will benefit from AI more than any other national security mission. Explain. If you think about first the role of intelligence, the intelligence as a community of practice is built around this concept of being an early warning system for policymakers, for war fighters, right? It is to get ahead understand what your adversaries are trying to do, right? So that you can, you know, uh, not allow somebody else to dictate the conditions in which you need to operate, right? The, the use of force is about the ability for me to make you do something that you would not naturally do, right? And that force can be passive, like, you know, IO operations. It could be kinetic as in, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to bomb you. Everything from those extremes. So if I can apply AI to have better intelligence, then everything behind that intelligence gets to be applied to solve a class of problems. If your adversaries can disable your intelligence, again, it doesn't matter how good your principles are in making decisions. It doesn't matter that your president's on top of things. It doesn't matter that your sync commanders know, you know the best, they have the best aircraft carriers and the best airplanes. It doesn't matter because your initial assumptions will be wrong. So intelligence is the pointy end of the spear and AI as it applies to that point would determine early on the victory conditions or failure conditions of what you're going to do as a community. So would it help you, for instance, identify terrorists potentially? Absolutely. I mean, look, the, if you think about it, you know, right after 9-11, you know, the intelligence community and academia did a lot of studies on terrorism. So, you know, how, how, you know, how do terrorists operate? And they came up with, you know, there's like 2,000 steps that you need to go through <laughs> to, to execute a, you know, a, a, a effective terrorist operations. And there are a couple key points where you can detect terrorists, like when they cross a border, when they need to interact with the world, right? And so their job is to hide in the noise. A terrorist job is to be below, the, so you cannot sense them. Well, what do computers do a really good job with when you use AI algorithms to computers? It's to find the patterns in the noise. 
So it makes it much harder for terrorists to hide in the noise because the algorithm is saying that's unusual. That doesn't fit the pattern, right? And you can draw attention to that. Flip side, by the way, it makes it harder for people in the intelligence community to perform their mission because it's also harder for us to hide, right? So it kind of cuts both ways. Would it improve planning? Would it improve operations? Let me give you a good example about planning and operations, right? Part of planning is to understand the situation around you, we call it SA, situational awareness, right? And if you've ever gone into a, uh, any control center, a command center, right? You got, you got screens everywhere, big screens, little screens. You got a lot of people staring at screens, right? And, and you know, they're eating their sandwiches and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're bouncing around and it's a very machine to human process, right? The problem is that's really slow because it requires you to go through, you know, hours and hours of material to find that golden nugget that you're looking for, that, that needle in that haystack. You could take an algorithm and, and apply that same approach and a computer can find that pattern in milliseconds that would take hours to understand. So then, so that's just the discovery part. The planning part is, you know, we kind of plan based on patterns. You know, we train our military leaders to say, here are the patterns. These are typical solutions you would solve this problem with, right? Well, with computers and AI, we can actually run the simulations. We can run the scenario a thousand, a million, a billion times to see what the outcomes are versus trying to intuit that solution, right? Based on this personal experience. And in many cases, there aren't a lot of people with personal experience in these kind of classes of new forms of warfare because it's never been done before, but we can simulate that. Are computers always right though? And are they sometimes too brittle? Computers can be very brittle, right? And, and, and that's one of the concerns that people have. Either unintentional brittleness or intentionally injected brittleness, right? So let's go through the two categories. So one of the complaints about AI by AI researchers themselves is that the machine doesn't actually understand, right? The way a human understands, they understand statistically, right? They use neural networks to, to weigh different options. They, they run it a billion times to come up with the best solution statistically without the actual understanding of what's below that because everything's just converted to equations and math. There's still an important relationship between the humans and the machines, right? Humans that purely just rely on the machine blindly, it's sort of like taking a self-driving car and starting to read a book, probably a bad idea, right? It's 99.9% .9 time safer than when you're going to drive a car. But when it's that wrong, that 0.1% of the time, it's really wrong. It is With catastrophically wrong, <laughs> right? right. Uh, and it is not time to, no time to correct because your assumption is the machine is right. So that human machine trust, how the machine interacts with the human and how the human interacts with the machine, that's that gray zone that we need to do a lot of work on right now. And, and if we don't do that work and we just say, just trust the machine 
or just trust the human against somebody who knows how the team humans and machine together again that approach that that interaction is probably a superior approach than the one or the other approach i have uh read the term ethically fraught uh, in connection with AI. A lot of people are concerned that if we're gathering all these different kinds of data, credit information, travel information, medical information, you're purchasing history and you're putting it all together and letting machine massage this to find these patterns, that it constitutes a real invasion of privacy. What do you say? Well, I would say, um, remember the scene, I don't know if you remember the movie, A Beautiful Mind. I do. Okay. There's this is one scene where uh, the conspiracy was all over the walls and went all, all, through all four walls and there was connections and wires and like this is connected to that and that's connected to that. Okay. That unsupervised way of finding correlations and patterns could be simply correlation but not causation. Again, the machine doesn't understand the difference between those two things. So it is irresponsible to boil the ocean, just throw everything into the big stew and see what happens. You have to do real machine learning and training. You have to be very intentional on every step of the way. The core data you collect, right, needs to be scrubbed for bias. What kinds of data you use needs to be related to the problem that you're trying to solve. And you have to have an understanding of the limitations of the answers that the machine is going to give you or the decisions it's going to make. And if you're not, then all the concerns that people have are legitimate concerns. But responsible use of AI requires you to go through all those steps. And that's why the AI Commission really focuses around these responsible use, the testing and evaluation and validation, the, the human informed decision of, you know, when to use AI and when not to use AI, all of that's part of the, the, what I call the value chain, whether or not you can trust the AI algorithms or not at the end. The European Union is worried enough about AI that it's talking about regulating it. Um, do you think if there is regulation there or eventually here, does that undercut the utility of AI from an intelligence point of view? Look, I understand that one of the tools in the toolbox is regulatory, right? The challenge with moving on, out on regulatory too early is that you're solving yesterday's problems for tomorrow. And I think, well, I, I agree that the concerns that na responsible nation states like, well, you know, the, the countries and the EU itself that's trying to solve, I don't think that should be your first tool. Right. I, I think sitting down as responsible countries or companies or departments and agency first start with this concept of responsible use. Right. The, these algorithms and these techniques are so early in the ballgame that the things that we hold dear to our now, even the assumption that we need lots of data may not in the long term turn out to be the best solution. So overregulation or regulating the wrong thing actually could do more harm than to protect you. Of course, right now there's a lot of concern about tech and its incredible power and influence here in the United States. Um, 
And I'm just wondering how you counter those arguments that, that it's playing too big a part in our lives already. First of all, I think it's a useful debate. You know, there, there's some people who say, well, you know, this, this is a bunch of paranoia. Look, look, when people are concerned, right, about how these algorithms or technologies are being used, and there's a lack of transparency, like, uh, I don't understand how you got to my credit score. You know, what does a, what does a 822, how did you get to 822 by versus a 921? Right. I mean, but our lives are being measured by, you know, by these algorithms on a daily basis. So, so the first one is we need transparency. Right. And, and the big companies need to be transparent if it's affecting people's daily lives. They don't want to be. And I think that's the dialogue that needs to take place. Right. Because it affects us. It puts us into a box. On the flip side of that, I don't think is necessary to automatically go down to react to the impulse of fear that says we have to ban, right? That conversation needs to take place between tech, between government and the citizens of what is acceptable use. Because if people at the end of the day don't trust the algorithms, no matter how good they are, then AI will fail because people won't trust it. Gilman, you said at the outset of this interview that, that this was a must for the U.S. government, that it had to get moving on AI or probably China uh, is going to eat its lunch. So what does the U.S. government need to do? And what does the U.S. private sector need to do? Well, first of all, I think um, we have to understand the timeline, as I said earlier, is not dictated by us. The Chinese have made clear, they have put out clear dates, Right. They want to have an effective AI power nation by 2025. They want to be superior to the West by 2030. And by 2049, they want to be able, right, in the domains of warfare to win in any domain, right, anywhere in the world, regardless of the situation, right? They see it as a key for them to become a dominant force in the, in the fourth um, uh, industrial revolution. And they see digital IT, AI, biology, as all components of winning that, you know, that, that battle for superiority. Okay, given that timetable, what do we do? There's some good news, right? We're ahead on things like algorithms, we're ahead on talent, right? They may be ahead on data, they may have some applications to lead. But it's not just a binary condition between the US and China, right? I mean, well, two thirds of the rest of the world economy is not the US or China, right? And so in this issue of AI, before we just define victory conditions is why is their approach to AI different than ours? Do we really embody the democratic values because these get encoded in these algorithms, right? How we use the data. What do we use it for? You know, are we going to come up with social scoring? That's really an important foundational thing before we get into the tech, because unless we understand the foundational reasons of how we can build these algorithms, and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable as a society, we're never going to be able to get to a place of success. So are those conversations taking place? Yes, your commission has put out a report, but do you really think this has been embraced in the places it needs to be embraced? 
I, th I think it's the debate that's happening today. It's not just in the Congress, right? We see it even in an employee base where employees are asking the leaders of their companies, are we doing the right things, right? Researchers are laying out, these are the areas that we really needed to actually get a better understanding of the limitations and the appropriate uses of these technologies. The beauty here in the US, quite frankly, versus the Chinese, is that we actually can have that debate here, right? We don't have military civil fusion like the Chinese, which can just declare it and say, we don't really care. This is what we're going to do as a nation state. But you said earlier, there's no second place in AI. And if we're caught up in having the debates about these um, issues uh, surrounding democracy and ethics, do we end up way behind the curve? I actually think we, we end up being a better place, right? So, and I'll give you an example. Right, the Europeans believe around the importance of privacy and data, right? They're on one extreme of the spectrum. The other extreme is we have no concern about individual rights and privacy, which are the Chinese, right? And we're somewhere in the middle between those two extremes. Well, if the West solves the problem of how to create intelligent machines without having to gobble up every single piece of data in the world to get it to be intelligent, their systems are going to be superior than the ones who just jumped on today's bandwagon. So that, those early debates, the, the, the appropriate use, will lead to safer systems, more reliable systems, and systems that people will have confidence in versus the other systems. So what we may lose in that short-term early phases of like go rush to put it everywhere, I think being thoughtful is really, really important. Right. So I think we're trying to do that. I think I think our companies are trying to do it. Our our, our governments and our research are trying to solve that. We're about this leaping into, oh, let's just turn this stuff on and see what happens. You know, it's not particularly responsible for you to load up a bunch of autonomy and throw it into a battlefield like Syria. Say, let's see what happens. Right. That that's not only counterproductive. Right but partly lead you to really poor implementations of AI. So I think, I think in this case, you can get your cake and eat it too, but you have to be thoughtful about it. You just can't let it randomly play out. And I think that's the basis of the commission's report, right? Is we need to be thoughtful. We need a strategy. We need to look at what our competitors are doing. We need to have you know, a competition council. We need to be moving forward on the technology, not just on the science. You keep saying we need to. Are we doing it? I think the answer is yes. Gene, that was a fascinating interview. I was really chilled by his observation that if you come in second in artificial intelligence, you have lost. That the victor in the artificial intelligence race can essentially get inside our defenses and spoof our responses and our offenses and uh, defeat us before a shot is fired. It is a serious challenge and we will see if we are up for it. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Spy Talk. That's a wrap. Come back and listen to us again next week on the Spy Talk podcast. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy.
If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.